Hello, and welcome to the Take is Directed podcast. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Today, we're delighted to hear from Gabrielle Fitzgerald, founder and CEO of Panorama, a nonprofit action tank dedicated to solving global problems based in Seattle. Prior to founding Panorama, Gabrielle directed the $100 million Ebola program at the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation and served as the Director of Global Program Advocacy for a decade at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We've asked Gabrielle to join us today to speak on the current state of global outbreak, preparedness, and response. Gabrielle, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Steve. Glad to be here. You just recently co-authored a study on global capacity to respond to outbreaks titled Global Epidemics, How Well Can We Cope?, which was published in the British Medical Journal. That follows an earlier study, which I was part of, actually, that came out in 2017. The lead author was Suri Moon, and that title of that was Post-Ebola Reforms, Ample Analysis, Inadequate Action in the British Medical Journal, which looked at these same parameters after Ebola and trying to reach conclusions of where were we seeing action in implementing recommendations on what needed to happen to avoid the kind of catastrophic and cascading failures we saw around Ebola. It also followed the, the number of studies that were conducted in the immediate aftermath of Ebola 2014-15, one of which Suri Moon played a lead role in, authoring, and the title of that was Will Ebola Change the Game? Ten Essential Reforms Before the Next Pandemic, the report of the Harvard LSHTM Independent Panel on the Global Response to Ebola. So uh, first thing, Gabrielle, I think it's great that you and the other authors of this piece are staying with the game in coming back now and revisiting these same issues and asking the same set of questions of what has changed, what has not, and what are the critical gaps. In your analysis, you put a principal focus on three dimensions, although you they break out into several sub-dimensions, but the three that you give the greatest prominence to our monitoring, which is sort of oversight, surveillance, in order to trigger informed and quick action. Financing, particularly money, adequate funding over multiple years to build capacity and to achieve capacity, particularly among low-income countries that are very vulnerable and limited in the basic capacities of preparedness. Third dimension is the question of leadership and who is in going to be in charge, particularly when we reach a situation that becomes globalized and uh, reaches a monumental scale, both the danger and threat, but also the level of mobilization. So thank you for being with us. Why don't we walk through what are you arguing in this new piece with respect to those three dimensions, monitoring, financing, and leadership? Well, let me start by going back a bit to the reason we felt that writing this piece was so important. So as you mentioned, following the West Africa Ebola outbreak of 2014-15, there was quite a few major studies that took place that uh, really were calls to action for the world to change the way that we respond, prepared for and responded to outbreaks. And like you, I was part of a number of those and felt that the caliber of the reports and also the similarity of the recommendations and the global commitment that the world had made in fighting the West Africa Ebola outbreak would lead to change. And so we're four years post the, the beginning of that outbreak. And so 
it's an interesting time to look at what has changed. And that was the purpose of this paper to say, okay, there was all this global commitment and all of this energy about change immediately following the outbreak. Where are we today? So maybe to give you the headline and then to dive into the specifics, the headline is, well, there has been incremental progress in a number of areas. We are not that much better prepared for a major global outbreak today than we were four years ago. For people that have been around this for a long time, it sounds like post-SARS and post-avian flu, similar reports are produced, and it's referred to as the cycle of uh, panic and neglect. And so we're in the neglect cycle right now. Um, While there are outbreaks happening on a regular basis around the world, they haven't reached the level of global attention that the Ebola outbreak did four years ago. And therefore, there's no pressure on policymakers to try and address some of the issues that were raised. And so the purpose of this paper was really to try and make sure there was an accounting for the progress that had been made to date and give credit where there has been some good progress, but also point to some significant gaps in the field to date. Thanks. So let's go through those. Let's start with monitoring. Uh, We do have this new entity, the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, that was formed. You could say a bit about its genesis and its first meeting and what lies ahead. And is that proof of progress? Do people Are people hopeful and optimistic that that board, which grows out of some of these earlier studies and recommendations, that, that that's one of these instances of incremental improvements? Why don't we just start with that? Great. So it was good news that the Global Pandemic Monitoring Board had its first meeting less than a week ago. On the positive side, it's chaired by two very well-respected leaders, former Director General of WHO, Gro Harlem Brundtland, and the current Executive Secretary of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent, ASSI. So two very highly regarded leaders with a panel of other um, impressive leaders in the field of health. So that's the good news. I think on the less positive side, it took quite a while for this panel to be assembled to the point that we're four years post Ebola and it only had its first meeting in this month. There was just a brief press release that was issued following the meeting And the main action it pointed to was a report in September 2019. And while I think reports are important for documenting what needs to be done, there needs to be a lot of action going along with the report. And the world doesn't change because of reports. So I think the jury is still out on the effectiveness of the GPMB. I think on the plus side, it is something that sits in the director general of the WHO's office. So it's been given the highest level of attention within WHO. But as our paper points out, a number of the issues that are required in order to prepare for a global outbreak are not within the purview only of WHO. It's critically important that a broader set of WHO agencies and the private sector be engaged to ensure that we're prepared. So I think it's a bit of glass half full, glass half empty. Um, I'm glad it exists. It's an excellent group of people. I'm confident they'll do a very good job. But I believe the job needs to be more than just writing a report uh, annually and really needs to be about sparking action. And I think it's too early to tell if that will be. Just a note on that. I mean, there was a lot of debate about where should this board sit and what should its authorities be and how independent and autonomous should it be and how much should it have a direct line 
to the Security Council and to the Secretary General. The decision was taken to use the creation of this board as yet another step to try to enhance the power and authority of the Director General of WHO, who came into Dr. Tedros, came into power July 1st, 2017. Very ambitious work plan put forward. So in a way, situating it at, at WHO was a decision, a conscious decision, by the powers that be in the Secretary General and the Security Council to test, to say, let's empower, let's not let's not separate from the Director General, let's make this part of his own bailiwick and authority. So that decision was taken, but it does beg the question still that you point out to, if, let's say, DRC, the Ebola outbreak in, in eastern Congo, let's say that it is not brought under control and it scales and it spreads into a more international phenomenon into neighboring states, and WH is, is overwhelmed by the scale of this, does this monitoring board come back, and does it have the ability to reach the correct high-level leadership to sound the alarm and inform and instruct and guide the response? What do you think? Well, I think that's a key question, and I know one of your recent interviews was with Peter Salama, who runs the WHO Emergency Program. And that conversation was about the security and the challenges of fighting Ebola in um, such an insecure region where this current outbreak is located. I think when we go back to the West Africa Ebola outbreak, and it quickly spread outside the borders of the initial country, Guinea, and went to Sierra Leone and Liberia, it was very clear that the infrastructure in place at that time was not remotely prepared to deal with a cross-border outbreak. And while the WHO has significantly improved their infrastructure to handle these things, what I saw that was required to respond to the West Africa Ebola outbreak is not something that even the very best uh, staffed and funded World Health Organization would be equipped to handle. During the West Africa Ebola outbreak, the UN Secretary General convened uh, what was called a Global Ebola Response Coalition, which was led by David Nabarro, who was very senior in the UN hierarchy at the time, who both coordinated the large set of actors that were needed to respond to the outbreak, both on the funding side, on the implementer side, on the political side. And that role was essential to be sitting very close to the UN Secretary General because it was so complex. It was so multidimensional. It needed to call in all of the major UN agencies um, to ensure an effective response. And so that's what I really hope we'll learn from. So kudos to Dr. Tedros and to Pete Salama for the progress they've made of really growing WHO's capacity to respond. But once it becomes a multi-country outbreak, the preparedness needed to do that is very, very different. And I, that's an area where I don't feel we've made progress on. Let's talk a bit about financing. Tell us what you're concluding in your paper in terms of the status of efforts to raise the funding available by countries themselves, but also by external sources for those those low-income countries, which simply lack the resources. They may be able to mobilize some, but certainly far less than what's required to build the basic capacities. Again, on the positive side, a number of countries have completed what's uh, called the Joint External Evaluation, or JEE. I think we're up to about 80 countries that have done that now. 
What that does is assess what countries are needed to do to prepare to respond to an emergency situation. So it's good that they've done that inventory. But what we have not seen is funding made available for countries to implement action plans coming out of that evaluation. And so that's a real challenge for the countries and for the world. There's something called the Global Health Security Agenda that does bring some money into the countries. I know the World Bank is looking at how its international development assistance account can be used for countries to prepare for outbreaks. But there's still um, much work that needs to be done and much financing that needs to be committed. There's also a commitment by the G7 several years ago to ensure that countries were funded to develop the action plans needed to respond to the JEE findings. But that has there's been no uh, at least public statements about how that funding has been uh, provided, if indeed it has. And so that's an area that we need to look to the G7 to hold itself accountable to keep come through on that commitment. I want to also talk about, so we've mostly talked about financing for preparedness, but a huge aspect of preparedness is also on a research and development agenda. And that's an area, again, where there's some bright spots, but there's also some pretty big gaps. So on the positive side, uh, the world came together to create the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, uh, which is a new initiative designed to develop vaccines for emerging infectious diseases. And they selected, I believe, seven diseases that they're going to focus on developing vaccines for and developing processes to make sure those vaccines can be available as soon as they're needed. So that's a great new entry onto the global landscape to help solve the problem around developing vaccines in the case of an outbreak. However, when you look at uh, research and development that's needed for other interventions, such as drugs, diagnostics, and even some of the equipment that's needed to fight an outbreak, like the protected covering that's worn by the health workers or easily assemble clinics, mobile clinics, there's been very little progress that's been made there. And unlike vaccines, where CEPI has now been created, there's no CEPI for drugs and or for any of those other um, interventions that are needed. So when you look at financing, it's both what do the countries need to prepare, but also what we're doing to support research and development, because those investments require a long lead time before they're going to come to fruition. Thank you. While we're on this topic, I just want to ask you, since you played this role of managing the program of support for Ebola that the Paul Allen Family Foundation brought forward, you're based in Seattle. Uh, I want to come back to the phenomenon that we saw in 2014-15 on Ebola, where predominantly the West Coast philanthropic community, which is the younger side of the philanthropic community, um, Zuckerberg, Gates, Paul Allen, others, came forward rapidly with somewhere in the order of about $250 million of dis quickly dispersing funds to fill gaps in the response to Ebola. And this is unprecedented. And you were part of that. Tell us what is the longer-term meaning and benefit of what we saw there, because it can both get these actors in the game in a new and different way. It can also backfire if there's, a, if there's disillusion that sets in, because expectations of what could be accomplished perhaps didn't align 
with the complexity and difficulty of the response. And you were there before, during, and after. So what are your reflections on that world as a source of important levels of support that is faster and and, and more quickly dispersing and can be focused on addressing really critical gaps? I don't want to say there was a bright side to the West Africa Ebola outbreak because so many lives were lost. But one thing that was positive was seeing the number of people who came forward to help, whether through philanthropic contributions or companies donating various products. There was really a um, significant surge of support to try and do whatever it could take to help solve that problem. And so that was really, I think, an uplifting thing to see that people really do come together in the case of a crisis. However, we have not seen that maintained in terms of long-term investments. So there are a couple different entities that are created today to try and um, keep some of those players involved. There's a group called the Ending Pandemics Collaborative that brings philanthropic donors together. There's also a group called the Global Health Security Private Sector Roundtable that tries to, again, bring private sector members together in the you know, while we're in this lull period without a global outbreak. So hopefully those entities will have those stakeholders ready to go should we need a response to another global crisis. But in terms of the investment that's needed in a kind of non-emergency, non-global outbreak situation, I think we've seen some um, some investments, like uh, in the case of CEPI, that was supported um, significantly through the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation. And there certainly have been some philanthropic investments. But I've worked, as you have, Steve, on many health issues over my career, And the way that people have come together around a concerted action plan and driving towards specific goals, I have not seen that in the philanthropic sector Mm -hmm. the way I have on other global health issues. But what I hear you saying, too, is that, okay, this may come in phases, and some of what happened in that period was very positive in terms of the response. And you you have the early beginnings of a kind of collaborative structure to bring people together. So it's it's not inconceivable that you could see these actors playing an important role again in the future in, in, in the next set, series of outbreaks. That's true. But going back to the concept of panic and neglect, yeah. I think the world would be better if we could kind of stabilize that yeah. cycle yeah, yeah. and have more investment, steady state investment, yes. rather than a cyclical investment yeah, yeah. just when there's an emergency. Yeah, well, they're not, those actors are, are not immune from the cycle effect, right, in which the threat subsides and attention moves away. And this is an investment in preparedness. This is an investment when the threat is not imminent when we should be acting in, uh, prudently and preemptively, but where all sorts of other things begin to crowd out. And we've seen that, as you say, you've described it as cycle of panic and neglect. We've seen that repeated over the decades. And, and you're right, we are now in a, in a period where uh, people are scratching their heads and saying well, there's been very slowed progress. Let's talk about leadership. We've already addressed a little bit about leadership in terms of the decision taken to really by Chancellor Merkel, by uh, Secretary General um, Guterres, by others to say, okay, let's give Dr. Tedros a chance. Let's, let's make him the central personality. 
the uh, Merkel, the head of state of Norway, the head of state of Ghana, have asked Dr. Tedros to come to the Berlin conference next month, mid-October, with the beginnings of a global plan around coordinating the response on health security. So that is a, a test of leadership capacity that is underway with the backing of some of the most powerful heads of state. Say a bit about that. What, what would your view be on the prospects for that, and how should we be uh, calibrating our expectations? Well, I think you raised um, the importance of leadership by we, – we've talked mostly about leadership within the UN, but I think you've raised the very important point of where countries need to lead. And I think uh, Angela Merkel has really played a leadership role on this issue, as has the Norwegian government. So I think that's wonderful. I think the challenge, again, gets to the maintained steady state commitment um, over the years. And I think if we look at our own U.S. government, um, who have been leaders on the global health security agenda, they have committed to to participating in the GHSA for the next five-year cycle, but it's not clear that the funding has been provided. And so I think there's need for a lot of leadership at a lot of different levels, um, both within the U.N., within donor governments, and then within country governments of at least working on this JEE concept and working with the World Bank to try and access financing, um, recognizing that financing is not readily available. Why don't you just say a word of update in terms of the status of U.S. funding? I mean, there there was the December 14 Ebola emergency supplemental that Congress approved, $5.4 billion, of which a billion went to creating capacity overseas, principally in 17 countries. That money is now is coming to the end of its expenditure, and now we're converting into a different method of financing where Congress and the administration are working out a different basis of that. Why don't you say a few words? How do you see where we are right now? Well, I think, um, as with many issues today, there's a lot on everyone's plate. And when something isn't front and center, it's easy to uh, therefore not be a priority. And so I think as those negotiations are underway, I think it's a terrific signal that the U.S. government did attend the last Global Health Security Agenda conference and speak very positively about the role it had played and the hopes that it will continue to play. So I hope that as these negotiations are underway, that will result in continued financing um, for the U.S. to maintain that leadership role they've been playing. We have this ongoing outbreak. I want to just close by coming back to DRC because that is a live and very dangerous and unprecedented situation in which you have an outbreak in the midst of a war zone. It was, it was first announced August 1st, so we're in the sixth, seventh week of the outbreak. A very strong mobilization by WHO. CDC has been very actively engaged. Um, you have the World Food Program. You have the UN Blue Helmet peacekeeping operation very engaged on the security side. You have MSF and the International Federation Red Cross Red Crescent, deeply engaged International Monitoring Corps, International Rescue Committee. Not a large number of actors, but the right mix of actors that are there. But it's a very uncertain and difficult situation. Um, No clear answers around security. It could, the Ebola outbreak has spread into Butembo, a city of one million, 
and there's the risk of spreading into zones along the Uganda border that are completely inaccessible because they're under the control of well-armed and well-equipped militants. What do you see, just in the closing here, how do you see that dangerous outbreak playing into revisiting these questions that you're trying to get us to focus upon? Well, I think there is definitely a a worst-case scenario still uh, potentially on the horizon, and obviously all of us hope that those will not be the case. But given both geographic location of where the current Ebola outbreak is and the very difficult security situation there, there is the potential that Ebola could easily spread into multiple countries. And given the security situation in that region, that immediately gets to the point that WHO can only do so much. It is not an agency that's designed to work in armed conflict zones. And so that I think that reinforces the point that the UN Secretary General at some level has to be involved in this as soon as it becomes a cross-border and when it's in a conflict region. So um, obviously, we're very hopeful that that will not be the case and that this outbreak will come under control quickly as the last outbreak in DRC did. But uh, the jury is definitely still out on that. I do want to mention briefly before we close, you know, we've talked about DRC and Ebola. Mm -hmm. And because Ebola sometimes tends to get the headlines. Um, there are other emerging infectious diseases that are, uh, outbreaks that are happening around the world that are lower profile. There was an outbreak of Nipah disease in India earlier this mm-hmm. year. There have been several outbreaks of loss of fever. And there are also outbreaks of diseases like measles that we thought were well under control. While Ebola has a very kind of scary and graphic connotation, there are other uh, diseases emerging all the time that the world isn't necessarily prepared for. And that's why when we design a response system, we need to be looking at a whole range of contingencies and types of disease outbreaks um, and make sure we're prepared for those. Would you say that WHO, under the leadership of Peter Salama, running the emergency program, that they have succeeded in stepping up the capacities of surveillance across this spectrum of cases? Because that's one of the things that they've consciously set out to try and put in place. Yeah, I I think that, again, the response capacity has increased significantly, but there are still a number of gaps in ensuring we have a, a robust global surveillance system. And I know there's a number of people looking at how we can improve on that. Mm-hmm. So another area that needs work, and maybe I'll also quickly say the paper that we wrote, we've mostly focused on the financing and monitoring pieces but also pointed to a number of different areas, um, such as issues around trade and travel, uh, knowledge and data sharing, and looking at the overall humanitarian aid system that we haven't had time to talk about today. But those are also really important, ensuring that the world has a robust uh, system to prepare and respond to outbreaks. If this outbreak in DRC in in eastern Congo expands and becomes more globalized in in the midst of this or regionalized in the midst of this really difficult security set of challenges. It's bigger than WHO and it has to come forward to those levels. Well, thank you for joining us for today's episode of our Take as Directed podcast featuring Gabrielle Fitzgerald, founder and CEO of Panorama. I urge you all to read, if you can, Global Epidemics, How Well Can We Cope, published in recently in the British Medical Journal. We also invite you to subscribe to Take As Directed so that you can never miss our latest episodes. And for more information 
on our upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page. Thank you. Thank you.